This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to WTS Waikato, Season 2. It's a radio show and podcast about the goings-on in our region under the new normal. I'm producer Gary Farrow. Horse riding has always been a rewarding hobby. Not only are the places you can go, the moves you can pull off, and the competitions you can compete in great, but you can also form a lasting relationship with one of these majestic animals. But are equine pursuits as accessible today as they were in the past? Let's hear about it in this episode from a horse lover in the Waikato. So my name's Emma James, and it's actually a bit of a funny story. I hated horses as a kid, which um, I think my mum was quite upset about because she had always grown up with horses. Um, And I was about seven years old when my best friend at the time, Paula, she had a horse, and she'd been nagging me to ride it for forever. Nagging, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I finally came, and I got on this stupid horse, and it full body shook, um which like while I was on it so it nearly unseated me and I nearly fell off and then I was cursing this stupid animal and then we went for a walk and I decided I wanted one <laughs> so <laughs> I started riding school at Clearwater Riding School at Oakur at um in Taranaki at about seven years old and was there for two years old before my parents caved and bought me my first pony little gelding called Grey Spray. Um, I think he actually lasted um, until he was about 40 years old. He was only put down like a couple of years ago um, and he was like blind in one eye and you know typical riding school pony but he was really really cool and from there um, I just progressed up into the slightly more younger horses. Nothing too hot or silly obviously but something a little bit more Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. I never would have made it through the Arkansas mud if I hadn't been riding on a Tennessee stud. Did your family have a bit of land that you could keep your pony on? They ended up buying two acres in Leperton. Um and it's actually now Kettery, <laughs> Century Hill Kettery. Um, and I always promised myself that I would buy that property back if I ever had the chance, but now I don't know if I will. Um, it was only two acres, but um, it was enough to have two ponies. So I had my pony and we always had a paddock mate for it um, just to keep it, you know, keep it happy with a friend. Or um, at one time my mum had her horse with me too, so we could go riding together. Did you have to have your family have to have special clearance to sort of have equines on your piece of land? No, um, no, but obviously if anyone um, thought that 
our animals were neglected or you know they they were visible from the road so if anyone ever thinks that horses are too skinny they generally just call the SPCA but we never had any of those problems. Mm, Or if they thought the um, section was too small or something like that. Yeah yeah that's something that they would Mm. But again, we never had any of those issues. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun, and his eyes were green. He had the nerve and he had the blood. There never was a horse like the Tennessee stud. How was your hobby fostered over the years? So first off, you had your your own pony, and uh, yeah, how did it progress from there? My parents actually, it's only now that I'm an adult myself, I realise how much they actually sacrificed to give me the life that I wanted um, as a child with my ponies. Um, So we bought the land, we bought the pony, I started off with a um, standard breed called Fern who we just potted around on and then when I got a little bit better at Pony Club and more confident we got a pony called Jazz. And then they bought the horse float and it didn't have all the bells and whistles but you know like it was all we needed to get me from A to B Um, and they sacrificed weekends and dad sacrificed uh, all sorts of things like going to Pink Floyd (laughs) concerts, things that they would enjoy. They didn't do because they were fostering my love for horses and helping me grow up um, doing what I love. so when we were little, when I was, oh, I say I was quite little, I was probably still around 12 or 13, um, mum bought a horse as well and we joined the Taranaki Trekking Club and it was never particularly successful because the horse that she bought was actually nuts. Um, <laughs> so we'd always call dad in the middle of nowhere asking him to come and pick us up but, you know, it was all character building stuff and all moments that I think brought mum and I closer together and I wouldn't change it for the world. Maybe... If she could have had a nicer horse, we would have been able to go and do more things. But I think I really appreciate that she struggled through having that difficult horse because she wanted to ride with me. Um, and I think it's every horsey mum's dream to have a horsey daughter as well, yes. even at the exuberant price of <laughs> horses. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, it's wonderful that you were able to build your family relationships and in turn your family made Uh, sacrifices so that you could pursue this hobby Um, because it's not that it's not that easy a hobby to get into is it no and it's not a very forgiving sport either you either do it because you're super good at it and you're you know you're up there in the top ranks and you're getting lots of money or you do it because you love it there's not really any other reason to do it Um, I mean I say it's not that rewarding but at my level it's not rewarding in the terms of sponsorship or money or that sort of thing but it's hugely rewarding in terms of self-satisfaction and just knowing your horse is happy to see you even if you don't have a bucket of feed for him and he wants to spend time with you and you can achieve your own little confidence goals along the way it's really rewarding in that aspect wait a minute this sounds interesting i'm back in the saddle again out where a friend is a friend where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson weed. I'm back in the saddle again. Jazz passed away 14th of January this year. Oh, so I'm sorry to hear that. Jazz, she was she was an interesting character. She, um, I bought her, it must have been 2007, and that's actually how I met one of my best friends, Justine Scott. Um, 
we kept in touch during my ownership period of jazz and she came to visit and give me lessons every now and then. And then I sold her to a girl called Paris down in Wainui Amata, down Wellington Way in I think 2011. And again, we stayed in touch and became friends. And then Paris rehomed her three or four years ago now um, because she was, you know, she was going off and doing her hairdressing course and things like that, becoming an adult and um, didn't have the time or money. And then she messaged me one day and she said, look, I've had a really bad dream about jazz. And I said, look, go and see her. They won't mind. So she did. And she was emaciated. She was skin and bone. And this is a horse that we'd struggled to keep weight off because she'd live off the smell of an oily rag, so they say. Um, And so she took her back. They surrendered her back and all of her gear. And a month later, she was on a transporter back to me after all these years and um, over the past four years I've had her um, Paris has still visited her frequently we've you know that relationship between us is we're going to be really good friends of course I've still got Justine I was a bridesmaid at her wedding all because I met her through this pony Um, so she's created incredible memories within our little friendship and our little community and it was really nice that when the time came to put her down I could invite these people to come and say their goodbyes and there were lots of people wanting to come and spend time with this pony because they meant so much to her, even though she was a grumpy old bag. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing that your relationships, again, have been solidified around a horse because you're, you, you all have relations, had relationships with jazz, so you naturally had relationships with each other to help... Uh, ensure jazz's well-being yeah and you will find that like in the horse community you know there are people who do buying and selling of horses for a living so they don't quite get that emotional attachment um because if they got emotionally attached to every single horse in their barn they would be an absolute wreck but when you're just a person who's looked after a horse for so many years but it's ready to move to its next home like you do kind of have that pang and that like you know you want to do the best by them and find them a good home and in return those owners often like to keep in touch to say oh look what we've done today or I achieved this goal because he's such a good boy or you know that sort of thing and I'm finding that even with my horse now um, the person I got him off is still so interested to see what he's doing and how he's doing because she loved him so much herself. Are you emotionally attached to the horses you work with, like all all of the horses you work with? I mean, I, I saw, again, a picture of you on Facebook with uh, no less than three horses. <laughs> um, but yeah, how do you how do you manage that and um, the, all that emotional attachment? I suppose it's like anything, you kind of do need to compartmentalise it. So at one point I did have three horses and um, I never envisaged myself having that many. It's expensive, to be quite frank. It is horrendously expensive. I mean, you've got the ferry, you've got the feed, you've got the grazing costs and that's the bare minimum. If you need a vet call out, like that's much more than what you pay for a cat or a dog. But all three of the horses at the time had such sentimental meaning to me and so much value to me that I was pretty much willing to forego food on my table to look after them. Um, so I lost Ed, he was like my sole horse, he was probably, <laughs> I'm wearing a lock of his mane and Aww. my locket around my neck. I lost him to colic in 
2020, um, just before New Year's. And then I was only down to Jazz and my horse, Jeff, who I had, um, he was a young thoroughbred off the, off the racetrack and I had achieved so many goals with him. But after my accident, I got um, kicked in the face by a horse. Um, September 2020, I just didn't quite have the confidence to deal with him. And I think when Ed died, I was kind of ready to just be like, you know what, I want to break. I want to break from all of this. And so I sold him to a fantastic home. Um, um, they absolutely love him and I still get regular updates again, you know, keeping in touch, which is really nice. And then I only had Jazz and uh, she was going to basically be with me until she died. And I'm really glad that she was. Um, but between then, I missed having that kind of connection with a horse. I think once you've had one, it's really hard to give up, even though financially you might want to break or mentally you might want to break. But I found that my mental health, it wasn't suffering so much. It was just something was missing. A piece of me was missing. So I wasn't actively looking to buy a horse. But then when one came up that I knew might be suitable, that my friend was selling on behalf, I thought I'd give it a go and I ended up buying him. So. Um, for me, it's quite emotional um, because I like to have a decent amount of trust in the horse that I'm riding to. Now that my confidence has been knocked so hard with my accident, it takes a lot of courage for me to do horse-related things again um, that I used to be fine with, but now that scare me a little bit. So I need to have trust in a horse that they're not going to, you know, do anything to hurt me on purpose. I know, I know accidents happen, but mm. so it is quite emotional for me. What sort of things have you done with horses over the years? Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you've done, isn't there? Yeah, so I always kind of did low level eventing. I've never been, you know, like a top level rider. I've never aspired to be one. But with jazz, I was out competing, eventing 80 centimetres, 95 centimetres, um, with Ed, I was jumping around a metre five to a metre ten. And then with Jeff, I came right back down because he was, you know, he was a young horse. He needed the training. He needed the schooling. Um, and then after my accident, and even now, over a year onwards, like 40 centimetre cross poles are scary for me. But, you know, it's all, it's all steps upwards. It shows your passion for the hobby that you're still involved in it, um, though, considering what happened. Yeah, and I think I'm pretty lucky um, working at um, St. Peter's School down in the Equestrian Academy because I was still surrounded by horses. Um, and my colleagues were really good and they were really understanding. There were quite a few things that I didn't want to do. I didn't want to go in the yard with a horse. Um, I didn't want to lead some horses that I thought might be fidgety. Um, but they were really good in allowing me to do things at my own pace. Um, but because I still worked in an area with horses, I was still around them. And I think that was really um, a huge key for me to get my confidence back because I could just do new things with them again every single day. I didn't just quit and say, no, I'm not touching another horse. Um, because if I had have done that or if I had have been working somewhere without horses near me, I probably would have struggled 
to get where I am now just with that whole journey of having them near me really helped as you mentioned before building those relationships with the horses is important because you build trust between you and the horses so it would be um, working uh, with them would be a way to gradually get closer to them and possibly conquer your trauma I guess absolutely and like there used to be a day where I'd get on any horse didn't matter I'd get on it now I'm really selective with who I ride and what I do um, what horses I do things with Um, Max my horse for example I'm I want to say 95% confident with him now Um, and I'll happily get on with if he hasn't been ridden for a few weeks or anything like that however if you gave me a horse that I was less familiar with I would be a lot more cautious um, and I don't just ride any horse anymore I'm really selective with who I ride um, on the ground though I'm pretty confident with pretty much any horse unless it's being absolutely ridiculous um, like the kids if they're running late to a session they'll ask me to pop down and catch the horse or bring it up for the ferry that's absolutely no issue anymore I'm happy to do that some other people who've had experiences like this with horses where they become um, they have an accident and they become a bit um, a bit cautious it's actually really common um, and it's also common to not be scared of them after an accident it really depends on the person um, a couple of friends of mine have had um, brain injuries or you know broken bones a broken pelvis and you know, one of them, she was right as rain. As soon as the doctor gave her the all clear, she was back up and she was back out competing. Um, no no worries in the world. And then, like myself, another friend of mine, she was really tentative about getting back on the horse. And they say it's the same. I haven't had this experience, but pregnant women, once they've had their child, um, they struggle sometimes to get back in the saddle and keep going as well not for everyone of course but just from what I've heard and I wonder if it's that self-preservation when you've had a really bad injury or you've had something significant in your life change your idea of self-preservation is probably a lot higher because you've got some like in my case I didn't want to get hurt that bad again Um, in their case maybe because they've got a little one depending on them to be okay Mm. I guess it's sort of like people who have a you know bike accident or a motorbike accident and um they yeah they realize their um fragility more so eh? yeah and i think as we get older too we don't bounce like we used to (laughs) and we have to remember we're dealing with animals that weigh 500 kg plus with a mind of their own you know if they really want to hurt us they can fortunately for us most of them don't want to and most accidents are just accidents Give us some background on your nice long horse tracks that you've been doing. Tell us a bit about that because I've noticed, um, I mean, that's how I um, came to know about your story was just um, seeing all of the trekking you've been doing recently, which looks amazing. It's just captures the imagination when the rest of us are um, shut away inside, (laughs) self-isolating. You're out riding over the hills on um, your horse. We're pretty lucky here in New Zealand um, to have some really nice riding tracks and they're not 
they're not there's not that many of them um we call them bridal trails there's not that many of them you know how cyclists have all their cycleways we don't have that many horse specific ones but the ones we do have are incredible and um particularly in the Waikato and even Taranaki there's the bridal trail there um you can do the same track over and over but it will still blow you away um and we're also really lucky um in Cambridge there are a couple of people who own private farms who are allowing riders to come and ride across their farm for a donation um which is really really great for us because it means that we can see some new things we can do fitness work with our horses um or just gas bag with our friends um but it's also really cool for them because they can have you know people riding across their farm and seeing their beautiful land as well Mm, that's pretty nice and um it would be important for you to be able to get out on treks like that sometimes from the perspective of the horses as well wouldn't it I think it's really good for the horse's well-being and I think you know even the top show jumpers and eventers um, if you're continuously working your horse in arena and drilling it the same thing over and over or jumping it over and over it's going to get sour it's going to get sick of it they need to do something um, to just relax to let their brains switch off for a little while and you'll see a lot of the top riders they still take their horse out for hacks across a farm or um, just wherever they can just to let the horse do something a little bit different and it's it's really important for their stimulation I think as well as ours too. We had spring in our heels Unwavering forces Head first into the unknown Like runaway horses in a fever till the end, and every step is a silver prayer in the face of a hard wind. So, what sort of places have you trekked, and how long are the trips usually? When I was a kid with my mum, we would go um, with the trekking club uh, four or five hours, um, and that was with a mass group of horses, um, professionally organised by the club. Um, Now I just go with a couple of friends when I feel like it, and uh, most I've probably done recently is two hours. Is that strenuous for the for the horses or is it fine? It depends on the land. Um, so like the hills I did the other day, um, my horse was real tired afterwards. He was really tired, but it was really good for him and his muscles and his brain. Um, and he was super happy afterwards. Very, very tired, but very, very happy. Um, and you kind of just go within your horse's limits. Like that probably would have been his limit, a two hour trek on the hills. Um, as his fitness gets up, we'll be able to increase that. But I don't want to make him muscle sore or anything like that. Mm. That's great that you could see that he enjoyed it, that he valued it, the experience. To think that you, both you and your horse, truly valued and needed that experience. It's a really good way to let your brain just relax for both them and us I feel Do 
you think horse riding is becoming more or less accessible for people as the years march on? I mean, obviously having enough land to uh, uh, keep a horse on is a problem. Um, the costs of horses are um, another hurdle. Um, but yeah, how do you how do you think it's going in terms of if somebody wanted to get into it? How easy would it be? Um, I think now it's a lot easier to get started, um, especially in the Waikato. Um, there are so many adjustment places, um, you know, which is somewhere you can pay to keep your horse. So, say for example, seventy-five dollars a week, and it gets its paddock. And sometimes um, you can come to an arrangement with the owner if they feed it for you. If you can't come out every day, um, otherwise you do need the land. Um, that's amazingly cheap for space to keep a horse. That's at the lower end of the scale. Um, yeah. But it d- really depends on the place's facilities and what you're expecting. Um, so, yeah, but in terms of getting started, even as an adult, there are riding schools that facilitate adult riding lessons. And so it's quite, um, it's easier to get involved from a lower level rather than um, at a higher level. Right, yeah. So it's it's easier to get in as as a hobby rather than competitively. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think anyone can get into it as a hobby. I mean, you don't have to own a horse. You don't have to have land. You can just go to riding lessons if that's something you want to do, or you can hire a horse out on horse tracks, and you know that still definitely counts. So yeah, I suppose it is um, really accessible from that perspective because I'd been thinking about how, you know, you have to buy a horse, you have to buy a land, but I suppose that's to build a relationship with a horse. Yeah, so I would say step one, um, before you make the financial and the time commitment, you want to see if you're really into it. Um, so, for example, when I was a kid, I did a year, a year and a half worth of riding lessons to make sure that I was committed to it because there was no sense in my parents' spending tens of thousands of dollars on a setup if it wasn't what I actually wanted. Mm. Cool. So um, just lastly, Emma, what would you l- say to people who are thinking of getting into horse riding but might not know how or whether they want to make the big initial investment of, of time and money? What's the, um, the good steps for people to look into? So I would say um, just have a Google of local riding schools in your area. Um, I know that in Waikato we have um, Waikato Equestrian Centre, Phillips Equine, Ponytails and Overdale and those are just the four that I know off the top of my head. Um, but they're all really, um, really local and run by good people. Um, so you can kind of just set it up from there, see if it's something that piques your interest. Um, you might think that horse riding is a really good idea and then you might get on a horse and be absolutely terrified. That's okay. Um, they are big animals. Um, or you might get on a horse and instantly know that that's exactly what you want to do. Um, but I think starting out at that level is a really good idea. Or even before you even do that, um, head along to some of the local shows and watch and um, talk to people and find out from their experience how they got started or what interests them and that sort of thing and volunteer at these local shows and you'll learn a lot from just watching and being around them. Thank you for listening to this episode of WTS Waikato. If you liked what you heard, you can follow the show on Facebook and find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
thanks to Free FM, the Community Access Media Alliance and New Zealand On Air for making this show happen. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.